Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And if you are taking notes, the title of my message today is, You Got This. You Got This. Uh, a, a while back, this would have been a, a, a couple years ago, I was uh, invited to go on a trail run in the mountains. And um, I, I could hear some of you giggling already. Um, I, I, I was amused that I was invited, just to be honest with you guys, right out the get-go. I just think it's funny that someone looked at me and thought, you know what this guy would enjoy? <laughs> a trail run through the mountains. Uh, that's not typically the vibe I think I get off. I feel like I give off more of a vibe of like, you know what this guy would enjoy? A wing-eating competition. Um, and that's true, I really would. Uh, if you're throwing one of those, I would love to be a part of it. Uh, but I was invited, and I was like, that's kind of cool. Maybe I, it's not, I've never tried it. And if you don't know what this is, you basically, uh, you run through like a, an uneven trail up in, like in a high altitude. And uh, I had some friends that were doing this, and they were like, It'd be, maybe you should come do this. And and I was like, uh, I thinking like, I don't really want to, but like, let's, yeah, let's try this. Maybe it could be great. Maybe, I, you know what? Maybe I could be the best trail runner ever. We just don't know. We haven't found out yet. And um, that did not happen. Just a little bit of a preview. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. And so we went on this trail run and we're going and, um, at, you know, I did not have the right shoes for it. My lungs are burning. They're on fire. I'm like, I'm struggling to make this happen. Um, my thighs are burning, and these people are, like, way ahead. And so, like, like they keep, like, slowing down and then trying to motion for me. And uh, their sort of way of encouraging was uh, a lot of yelling, a lot of yelling, um, which really wasn't that motivating to me, of just like, come on, come on, you're slowing us down, let's go, you got this. They kept saying that over and over again. You got this, you got And in my head, I'm just like, I don't know if I, if I do have this. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I maybe am dying, you know? And how, if I have a heart attack, uh, all you little tiny runners, I don't know if you're going to be able to lift me off this mountain. <laughs> like, you just have to, like, roll me down the hill. I don't know how this is going to happen. And, and so they're running, and they keep saying that, and I get to this point where uh, the trail bends, and I, I just can't keep up anymore. And so I stop, and I'm, I'm leaning on this tree to try and catch my breath, and I feel like I can't breathe. And I'm leaning on this tree, and it's like kind of overlooking this ravine. And I was just like, they're like, come on. I'm like, I feel sick. I feel like I'm going to throw up. And they're like, no, just tough it out. And like as they're, they're telling me that, I do throw up. I throw up <laughs> hard. I mean, like... The, the type of, of experience where, like, you know, you think that, that, that it's going to come from here, but it, like, comes from your knees, you know what I mean? Like, where it's, like, just coming up. And the force of it, like, it was a violent experience, right? And it caught me off guard. And the force of the throw-up motion threw me into the ravine. And so I just tip forward as I'm, like, vomiting and then roll, like, falling into the ravine. And I tumble down, like, several feet and land in some briars, and I'm all scraped up, and I'm, I'm like laying in my own sick, and they're like, they're like, hey, where are you? You know, and I'm laying in this thing, and I'm like, I'm here, I'm dying, you know, and they come, and they look over the ravine, and they're like, what happened? And I was just, I was hurt, but more than that, I was angry, you know what I mean? You ever get angry at the people where you're like, you people made me do this, I didn't even want to do this. Why can't you be into, like, you know, things that are fun, like, let's spend an hour in a hot tub. You know what I mean? Why can't we be doing that right now? 
And, and so they're like, you okay, what happened? And I just, I remember just yelling at them, I don't got this! I don't got it! Help me out of here, you know? It was miserable, it was horrible. And it was like I could see it coming, I knew it was gonna happen, and, and it happened. And the reason I bring this up, and the reason I think that they yelled this stuff to me and they were like just trying to encourage me and just push through it and you got this and all this sort of language is because I, I think like, you know, we think, especially in our culture, that this is what resilience is. We think of resilience, I think, as going hard, ignoring our pain, grinding it out without excuses, breaks, or rest. And I think the big question that comes up for me is, you know, is this an accurate definition or even a good goal? And maybe for you, when you think about it, it sort of comes up as these sort of moments in your own life where it's somebody motivationally barking out something like this to you of like, you got this, you can do it. Pain is just weakness leaving the body, you know? And you're like, I'm gonna choke you and the pain will leave your body along with your life. Um, Except... Like, these things are not true, right? We've had experiences with these things that have demonstrated to us, maybe experientially or maybe we've observed them, that, you know, pain isn't always weakness to living, leaving the body. Sometimes pain is a cue that you're having a heart attack, okay? Sometimes pain is a cue that your knee is blowing out or your left rib just cracked into your lung sac, okay? Sometimes pain is telling you something other than, like, keep going, move on. Sometimes that is the wrong message, but we don't know how to interpret it. And yet if we throw this one message at pain, that it's to be shoved down, ignored, and pushed aside, uh, then we're not doing a very good job of taking care of ourselves. And I think what is fascinating to me as I've been looking into and researching this subject of resilience, if you look into the lives of people that are successful over the long haul, what you notice is that those who go the distance aren't really those who go, go, go all the time. Because those who refuse to rest eventually burn out, act out, melt down, and stop short. They sort of burn hot, They do maybe something impressive for a moment, and then it sort of implodes. And we've seen this virtually in every aspect of life, in every sport, uh, in every field, in every every sort of thing that we could look up to and say, like, man, we, we can see when someone is pushing a little too hard and ignoring the signals that their mind, body, and emotions are giving them that maybe they're on a brink that shouldn't be ignored, that should be tended to and taken care of. And I don't think we can ignore this in a conversation about resilience, especially in our culture that is full of encouragement to just deny any sensation that prevents us from continuing to keep moving forward at all times. And we see this truth all over scripture, including in this Gideon story that we've been looking at throughout this series. Um, you know, and in case you uh, can't remember exactly what's happened or you haven't been here yet, uh, here's what has happened previously on Gideon. Um, man, I would be lost without these little previews, the beginning of Netflix shows, because I'm like, I don't remember what ha- I watched four episodes last night. I have known nothing. I remember nothing. And essentially what happens is God tells this guy, Gideon, um, that he has a mission for him, that he wants uh, to free his people from oppression through him. And Gideon doesn't feel like he can do it, but he decides to follow God step by step. And uh, his strength and his faith begin to grow. And God helps him assemble an army, which 
he feels unqualified to lead, but even though he still feels afraid and he still has doubts, he decides to, to trust God. And so he gets to the point where he pulls these 300 men together and he gives them the plan of like, here's what we're gonna do to face this massive army with our 300 guys. And this is what it is. Judges chapter seven, verse 17 says this. He tells his guys, keep your eyes on me and when I come to the edge of the camp, do as I do. Blow your horns all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And some of you are like, what's the rest of it? That is the rest of it. That's the whole thing. And maybe you're thinking the same thing that those guys were thinking at the time. This is a weird plan. I don't know if this is going to work. Um, uh, like, this is your battle plan. I don't know if you noticed, Gideon, no fighting involved. Okay, typically, to win a battle, there has to be some sort of a fight plan, and there's no fighting here. Instead, he tells 300 elite battle-tested warriors to basically do this. Wait for my signal, and then toot on your little trumpet, okay? And then we're all going to yell together for the Lord and for Gideon, which sounds crazy. And also, if I was one of the guys, I was like, did God tell you that we were supposed to say that exact phrase? Or did you add on the last name just for yourself? Is that... <laughs> and here's what is interesting. When you investigate it, God did not give him an exact phrase, which I think is funny, right? Like, for the Lord, you know? And he's like, also, I know you guys really respect me, so maybe just add in for Gideon um, if you want to. Also, it is mandatory. So we're gonna all do that when I give the signal. And it says this in verse 22. <clears throat> when the Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the enemy camp to fight against each other with their swords. And those who weren't killed fl uh, fled to faraway places. So just to recap what's actually happening here, they do this crazy plan, this thing that God lays out for Gideon to give these people. And when they do, the Israelites don't actually kill their enemies. Their enemies kill themselves. That's what ends up taking place here. And those that don't sort of run away and they hide. And that's great, except that now you have to chase them, which is gonna feel exhausting and it's gonna be a lot. And his men are already uh, really, really exhausted because they've been preparing for this thing for a long period of time. And so they start chasing them, but Gideon is like, man, we're gonna need some help. If this battle moves into a new territory and we're gonna have to do a different sort of thing and I don't know that the trumpet playing is really gonna get us through the next stage, and so we may need some extra help. And so he calls for reserves. And I think, you know, this is actually a sign of resilience, is being in this place where you actually know when and are willing to ask for help. And a lot of times we think of resilience as like the ability to do everything that you need to do or want to do on your own. But Gideon understands which part he could do with just the 300 and which part was going to take some additional backup. And this is true, I think, in our lives too. A sign of resilience is not necessarily how much you can do entirely on your own. It's knowing what you can do on your own and what you need help to do. It's having the courage to be able to ask for that help in those moments where you need it. And when he does... These reserves come out of the woodwork. They come from these surrounding villages and they join the battle and they're able to track down and chase down the majority of the army and they win this massive battle. There's a couple, there's two generals that are still left and yet Gideon is looking at the guys he has and he's like, these guys are trashed. Like they need, 
they need to rest. And so he goes to this village, um, Ephraim, and Judges 8, verse 1, he says, the people of Ephraim um, ask Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. Now, in case you can't figure out what's going on here, it's essentially these people in this village are mad because they have won this battle, they've fought this battle, and then he's bringing the army to their village and saying, like, hey, uh, could we get some, some help at this point? And they're like, hmm, kind of hurts our feelings a little bit because we, uh, we think you should have involved us a little bit sooner. Like, why are you coming to us now? And the irony here is Gideon did invite them to be involved sooner. In fact, he told everyone who wanted to to come fight and be a part of what was going on. And some people from this village actually did show up. And then they realized how difficult the battle was going to be. And they got afraid. And if you remember earlier in the story, Gideon, uh, God told Gideon to tell the people, like, if you're a little bit afraid and you kind of don't want to be here, it's okay to go home. And 22,000 people went home. And some of those people are from this village. And in this moment, these people are mad because they wanted credit for winning a fight that they initially refused to fight. Like Gideon included them, but they bowed out. And I think it's funny that, because I think this happens often in our lives where those who weren't willing to put in the hard work on the front end oftentimes are angry about not getting enough credit for the win on the back end. I know you don't know anybody like that, but this was Gideon's story. And then they blame other people for their choice not to participate, which is what's happening right here. And if I was Gideon, I would have went off on these people, right? I would have been like, <laughs> you left. This is your fault. But he doesn't do that, right? Because he's gracious, which is impressive considering how tired he is. It says this in Judges chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Gideon then crossed the river with his 300 men and Though exhausted, he continued to chase the enemy. And when they reached Succoth, this other town, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They're very tired. In other words, we're exhausted. There's a lot more to do, but we won't be able to do it effectively unless we rest and refuel first. And this seems reasonable. This seems like a good leader taking care of his people, knowing what they've been through and what's coming up around the corner and this seems reasonable that he'd be asking these people for help because he's actually fighting on their behalf. If he wasn't out fighting the battle and chasing these last two generals, if he didn't defeat the people previously, all of the people that he's asking to feed them would be dead. And the reason why Gideon asked this of them is because he seems to know this principle that I think we often miss in life in our current push through, grind it out culture. And that is the ability to push through actually comes from knowing when and how to pull back. If you are facing something that you're trying to figure out how to get to the other side of and you don't know when and how to pull back, you are going to burn out because that's how we work. Not all pain can and should be pushed through because sometimes it's soreness or irritation that we can push through, but sometimes it's a warning that we are depleted or injured and that we are about to make everything much worse 
if we push through something that is there for us to pay attention to and care for. Because when it comes to resilience, recovery is just as vital as pushing into resistance. We need both of these things to develop resilience. We need to push into resistance, and we also need to pull back and recover. We need this with situations that are physical, and we need this, situa- we need this for situations that are emotional, that are mentally taxing, that, uh, that are frying our brain, that are draining or sucking the life out of our soul. And God has been telling this this all along. Like this is something now that like science is telling us like, yeah, of course recovery is important. And God has been telling this about the human spirit since the beginning. Uh, In the book of Hebrews chapter four, verse nine, uh, it says this, the New Testament writer writes, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work just as God did from his. So let us make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish. And essentially, this verse right here, these couple verses are giving us a synopsis of how God designed people to work. In Genesis, you know, God created everything and then he rests. And then in the book of Exodus, when the people are given the law, they are commanded, not suggested, they're commanded to rest on a regular basis in something called the Sabbath. And then here, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author tells us that we still need regular rest. It wasn't just an Old Testament thing. It wasn't just a Genesis thing. This is a human thing. And if we don't take the rest, and if we don't rejuvenate, and we don't refuel ourselves when we need to, ultimately, we will perish. We will crash and burn. We'll melt down. We'll break down. We'll burn out. We'll become ineffective in life. And Gideon knows this about life. He understands this about himself. He understands this about his troops. But Gideon doesn't just understand this. Jesus understood this. In Mark chapter 6, verse 31, uh, Jesus says, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest for a while. And he said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. And here's what I think is fascinating. Even Jesus, God in human form, recognized his need to rest. Recognized when he was depleted. Recognized when he needed to pull back and take a break. And he didn't just do it for himself. He invited those around him who maybe weren't paying attention or maybe taking his lead to say, you guys need to rest too. You guys need to rejuvenate too. And I love that it tells us the reason that he takes a break wasn't because there was nothing left to do, there was nothing important to do, there was nothing significant that needed their attention. In fact, the real reason that Jesus decides to rest here is because there is so much to do and the need is so great and there's so many important things that need their attention that they don't even have time to eat. You ever been there? where you have so many things going on that you forget to eat, that you don't even have time to slow down and think about how to refuel your body. And back in this Gideon story, he understands this about his men, and he asked the villages his men are fighting for to give the armies 
resources to rest and refuel. And this is the response to that. Judges chapter 8, verse 6. But the people of Succoth replied, Catch the enemy soldiers who ran first, and then we'll feed your army. And Gideon's like, you know what? You guys really do sucketh, okay? Because I don't know if we can keep doing that. You'll, you'll, you'll let us rest later. You'll feed us later. We've already won several battles. Look at these guys. They're exhausted. But they're like, you got this. Just keep grinding. Keep pushing. Don't slow down. In fact, hustle harder. That's how you can actually get through your exhaustion. Do twice as much. Does this sound familiar? Some of you are like, I think I worked for that village. I think I, we should do a 23 in me on my boss. I think he's originally from Succoth. I think this is our cultural mindset. That we just, we got this. Just keep going. And you know what? This mindset is prevalent, but it's not working. In fact, it's killing us. And this probably feels like your life, right? Because work is no longer nine to five, right? It's 24 seven. The pressure is on us to always be on, connected and available. If you get a text or an email and you don't respond within the hour, um, you just burn a bridge, right? Your career may be, that's the way it feels. And you know, if there's too much for you and you can't handle it, just know that there are 10 other people lined up who would love to have your job and who won't complain like you do for never taking a vacation in three years. And even though in the midst of this, right now, we, we can feel that we're becoming less effective at what we do and more bitter about being made to do it, we just keep going because we feel trapped. We know we need to rest, but we feel like we're not allowed to. And one wisdom writer, understanding that this is not just a modern state, this is a state of frenzy that humans get whipped up in, and this has been happening since the beginning of time, since humans started organizing themselves into communities. And one wisdom writer in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, says this, Don't lose sight of common sense and discernment. They will refresh your soul. It will enable you to go to bed without fear, to lie down and sleep soundly. And this is the question I have of you. When was the last time you went to bed completely without fear and slept soundly like a baby. I mean, if you just look at the sheer amount of prescription drugs that are given out to people just to try and sleep at night, it would suggest that there is a lot more fear and a lot less sound sleep than we're designed for. I would guess that you are probably like most Americans, that your mind goes a million miles a minute and never shuts down, it never stops. You can't stop thinking and planning and worrying and overanalyzing and anticipating. And this proverb is telling us this. It's saying, listen, you need discernment to know when to rest and the common sense to actually do it. And yet some of us are so disintegrated that we can no longer read the internal indicators that we're nearing our limits. We have ignored and muted those buttons for so long that we can no longer read the gauges. It's like driving the car that is your body, that is your life, your mind, your emotions, your soul, with no gauges. You don't know how fast you're going, you don't know how much fuel you have left in the tank, but you are flooring it. And you're like, ah, fingers crossed. 
You have no sense of what you have left. And it leads to an exhausted life and eventually to crashing and burning. And Gideon's soldiers have been taking orders and fighting hard and they need to rest and refuel, but they're told no. And I just gotta tell you, Gideon does not take this well at all. Remember that like grace and all that stuff that was earlier? That's starting to fade away a little bit. <laughs> Judges chapter eight, verse seven says, Gideon says, after the Lord gives me victory, I will return and tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. Wow, violent and inventive. So you gotta give him that. He's creative in his angry aggression. Although, like every time I read this, this is what stands out to me. And I wonder if this caught your attention too. This moment is out of character for Gideon. Like so far, everything we have learned about him in this story, even the moments when he's afraid, even the moments when he pushes back, even the moments when he's doubtful, even the moments when he is insecure or angry, he still manages to act calmly and reasonably up to this point. And now suddenly, he's yelling, he comes unhinged, he's threatening to beat people with briars. Like, that should stand out. When someone who has always been this way is suddenly a totally different way, and that way is unhealthy, we ought to be like, something's different. Something is going on. What is happening? And I think it tells us a couple things. First of all, this struck, struck a nerve with him. Like, their ingratitude of what these men have done for them and refusal to take care of the people who have been taking care of them, that angers him. This is the first time this has happened. This is, I think, partially why this anger is coming out. And I think the, the second thing that I think we can see here is that Gideon is so drained that he has lost all ability to think clearly and to censor himself. Anybody relate to that? Like when you are drained, when you haven't slept in a while, when you haven't refueled, when you've been working nonstop, when you haven't been eating or haven't been eating healthy, like all of a sudden you turn into a different person. Like this track record that you've had of acting and being a certain way just sort of goes out the window and you lose clarity on what is going on and you also lose the ability to censor yourself. And the people who take the brunt of it are the people who are spending the most time in and around you. And I would guess that you have these moments. I wonder if you've ever just gone off and just threatened to beat people with briars, you know? My wife has, but she has low blood sugar issues, okay? And that's why she needs her snacks, okay? And then she comes right back. She comes right back from it. And she's like, you know what? You guys can put those briars away. We're not going to use those today, kids. I just needed a sandwich, and we're good. It says in Judges chapter 8, verse 8, that from there, Gideon went up to Pinel and asked, again, asked for food. So he's like, these people aren't going to help me. I'm going to go to a different city. So he got the same answer there. And he said to these people, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. He's had it. Now his threats are just getting weird, you know. Oh, you won't help me? I'm going to tear down your precious little tower. You guys like that tower? I saw the sign when I came in. Welcome to Pinnell, home of the incredible tower. Well, get ready to rechisel that sign, my friends, because when I get done with this victory, I'm going to trash that sign. It's coming down. The tower is done. Because everywhere he turns, he can't get help. He feels trapped. And now he is plunging into hopelessness because he realizes how out of control his situation is. And when you have this sense that you have no control, 
that you just have to keep going and taking the abuse, you start to become hopeless and you lose the will to keep going. Two psychologists ran this really famous experiment where they took several dogs and they locked them in these cages with short walls. If you love dogs, you're gonna hate this experiment, but I promise there's a point to it. And there was a a dividing wall separating the, the two sides and there were speakers in there and they would ring a bell and through, that would come through the speakers, and then they would send an electrical shock through the side of the, the, the cage that the dog was sitting on. And they wanted to know, what is the dog going to do? And uh, you're not a dog, but you're like, I know what I would do. I would jump over the wall to escape the electrical shock and then try and get out and eat the scientists, right? That's what you would want to do. And this is sort of what they wanted to do. Like the dog's impulse, right? They're, they're animals. And so they're like, they're feeling the pain of the shock. And so they, they try and jump over the wall to safety. And this is where the experiment gets particularly mean. Um, on 50% of the dogs, half the dogs, they put a harness on the dog, which kept it on one side of the wall, which meant that when the electrical shock ran through the floor on their side, they would try and jump and be pulled back and held down to the floor. And no matter how much they fought and how hard they tried, they could not escape the shock. They couldn't escape the pain of the situation. There was no way to get out of that state. And they ran this experiment multiple times with the same dogs, and eventually the dogs in the harnesses gave up. Every time the bell rang, they just they cowered in the corner. Even when they didn't send the electrical shock through, just the ringing of the bell caused the dogs to cower and cry. Even when they later took the harnesses off the dogs and ran the shock through the floor. You know what the dogs did? They stayed where they were and cried and yelped because in their mind, they'd been conditioned, right? Like it was no use. There was no rest. There was no reprieve. All there is is the pain and exhaustion of the moment, and these scientists called this phenomenon learned helplessness. The dogs learned that pain and suffering were outside of their control, and so they had no power over what was happening to them. All they could do was just sit there and take it. Their situation was truly hopeless. And I wonder if you have ever been there. I mean, not put in a cage and, and, and shocked. Um, hopefully that hasn't happened. If it has, please let us know in the prayer corner. Um, we need to get you some help immediately. But what I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you were stuck in a relationship, in a work situation, in a family, in an environment, in a dynamic that was painful and dehumanizing and exhausting, and at first you tried to fight back, you tried to escape, you tried to set boundaries, but it didn't work. There was no use. In fact, maybe in your situation, it only made it worse. The more you tried to resist and push back, the worse the situation was made for you, and you became hopeless. You eventually get to this place where you give up, and you're like, I guess this is just the way that it is. This is just my life now. Like, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm trapped. But the reality of it is, Even in a situation that is so dire like this, there's always something that we can do. It's being able to see it 
and act on it that keeps us from losing our minds. Like if we can be convinced that there is nothing we can do, then we really are hopeless. But if there's something that we can hold on to, if there's a small piece of control that we can grab hold of, we can prevent ourselves from dropping into complete hopelessness. Psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote in one of his books that um, when he was in Auschwitz, a concentration camp, that uh, one of the other prisoners there told him that if he wanted to survive, that, if, that to have the best chance of survival, he really needed to do two things. And the two things were this, to shave and to stand up straight. Because even in a death camp, he still had control over that. He's like, I know it feels like we're trapped in this cage and the floor is electrified and we are harnessed and there's nothing we can do. And there are a lot of things that we can't do. There are a lot of options that we don't have. But you do have control of something. And when you seize control of that, you hang on to your humanity. And Viktor Frankl goes on to say that he was amazed at how well focusing on those two simple acts of self-care buoyed his soul. And I wonder, like, what simple acts of self-care that we have completely let go of in our own lives because we're so overwhelmed by the big picture or this huge thing that's happening to us that we've sort of let go and relinquished all control of everything in our life, including the small things that can actually buoy our soul. And I imagine in this story that, that Gideon, he wants this for his men. He wants them to see that they can take a break, that they can stop, that they can push back from the grind for a little bit and eat and rest and they can find themselves again because war is hell. And he's seeing this hopelessness creep across the face of his men and this is why he gets so angry. He knows that their resilience will fade without rest and when every last bit of control is taken from them, he snaps. And he snaps more on their behalf than his own. And what he does is, in his anger, he yells threats, right? I'm going to beat you with briars. I'm going to tear down your tower. And then he storms out. He hunts down and captures the enemy through this back channel way, which is really brilliant and ingenious. And he captures them in a short amount of time with very little effort because he is really is a military strategic genius. And then he circles back to both towns to claim the meals that they owed him and deliver on the hostile promises that he made them. And I just got to tell you guys, he definitely beat some people with briars, okay? He definitely tore down that town's tower. It happened. It all happened. Which on one hand, I look at that and I'm like, he's a man who keeps his word. And I respect that, okay? Um, but on the other hand, I don't know that you need to follow through on all of the promises that you make in a blind rage fueled by exhaustion and calorie deprivation. Maybe just let some of those things go, okay? And... What we see in this story is that Gideon pushes way past his threshold and it costs a lot of people their lives. And I think this happens to us. When we push way past the threshold, when we allow somebody to tell us you got this, even though in our own spirit we know we don't got this, that we need to rest, we need to recalibrate, we need to rejuvenate so that we can come back out refueled, 
whether that's physically or emotionally or spiritually, when we override this thing long enough, there's a cost to it. And a lot of us are paying that cost. A lot of our kids are paying that cost on our behalf. A lot of our coworkers are paying that cost on our behalf. And what is interesting is later, when Gideon has had time to rest and reflect, the people ask him to be their king, and he tells them no. Because, like, now that he's slept and ate, and his mind is coming back to him, and he's thinking rationally, he's like, are you kidding me? I just proved to myself and all of you why I can't handle it. Because when I don't take care of myself, I lose the ability to take care of the people around me and to push towards the goals God has for me. And I gotta tell you, in your own life, when we live in denial of how depleted we are and we attempt to power through on empty, we lose clarity and we make short-sighted, impulsive decisions that sabotage our goals, values, and relationships. And I would argue that for you, the worst moments of your life were when you were depleted and you were in denial of that depletion. You did not want to reconnect with what your body needed, with what your mind needed, with what your soul needed, with what your emotions were telling you, and you pushed forward. And all of the things that you cared most about, your goals, your values, your core relationships, all took a hit. One poet in the Old Testament said it this way, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30. It says, even youths will become weak, tired, and fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And when I was a kid, this verse was read and needle pointed on pillows. And uh, everyone, including me, assumed that it meant that, like, if you just trust God, even though you have nothing left, like, you know, you will just be able to miraculously power through anything. But that's actually a misinterpretation of what is going on here. What this is actually saying is, um, you know, slowing down and spending time with God when you feel pressured to just keep running on empty, actually taking the time to slow down and spend time with God makes you stronger. But here's the catch. Nobody can build the trust you need in God in a hurry. This is an invitation to rest in God. And if we do, it's telling us that first and foremost, we will soar. And this is a piece of poetry, and so this is a metaphor. It's not, gonna, it's not telling you that you'll get like Superman powers and be able to fly. This is telling you that like when you spend time with God when you most need it, like you will gain perspective. Like when we seek God, he gives us the ability to zoom out of the overwhelming details and see the big picture, helping us to discern what we need to run after and when to rest. And over and over again in scripture, we're told that if your soul is tired, if you are worn out and burnt out, you don't just need to eat and sleep and maybe get some exercise. You need something more than that because true rest and rejuvenation only come from God. It's by developing this trusting relationship with him that we find rest for our souls. Anytime you see this word soul in scripture, it's referring to your whole being. And I think some of us have reached this place in life or if you aren't there now, you've hit it before, where you are dragging. And it's not just that you're physically tired. It's not just that you're emotionally tired. It's not just that your brain is, 
exhausted trying to solve the, the financial crisis in your family or what to do over here or how to fix this problem at work. It's that your whole soul is tired. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.